0: Hey, how's it going? Hey, it's going good. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm just going to adjust you on my uh, screen. How you been? I've been, I've been really good overall. Um, I think
1: both times I've talked to you, it's right after a, an injury. I just tweaked my knee yesterday at the gym, um, so that's going on. But I think it's, I think it's minor. I think it's one of those things that. By the time this come, comes out, I will have forgotten it ever happened, you know, like if someone asked me in a month, like, oh, how's your knee? I'm like, what are you talking about? So, but, um, oh no, yeah,
0: how did you do that? Just, uh, just falling off or actually climbing,
1: actually climbing. I was just bouldering in the gym and tried a problem that I, I had actually flashed the problem like a week before and just decided to do it again. It's like, I was just doing a volume day and it just you have to crank on a weird heel hook that's a little bit lateral and i just felt my knee go and uh came down right away and i can walk on it but um i think i walked on it too much yesterday i think the big lesson here i've i've learned this too many times but if you have a tweak the thing not to do is to spend the rest of the day seeing how much you can do with it you know <laughs> like testing it all the time and um, making sure that it's not as injured as you hope it's not and all that stuff. Just just let it chill. Just let it do its thing. It's super sore today and I think it's from all the walking. But
0: that's good, yeah. It's so easy just to kind of push through, isn't it, with um with stuff like injuries and kind of like test it out every day. And I always like the uh you know, when you see someone do something to their hand and they just can't stop touching it and they're <laughs> They're trying to have a conversation with you and you see their eyes glaze over and you see them rubbing their fingers in a really weird, <laughs> slightly creepy manner. And you're like, that's a climber with a niggle.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Classic.
0: How about you? Um, so I, uh, after we spoke last, I, what did I do? I finished off my training season with some of the, the youth. I went to Innsbruck on a training camp and had like a really good time with um, Toby Roberts and his dad, uh, working with Toby individually. Um, then I came back and it was, I think it was three days I was supposed to leave for Margalef and I went for a nice, easy social climb with some friends before going out for dinner. And uh, I tore my collar in my hand, oh. um, which was a bit gutting. Um, and then to so long story short, I. Had a scan that was very um, generously given quickly from uh, James at Sheffield Climbing Clinic just to make sure it wasn't a pulley or anything. And then had two weeks off, went, changed my plans, went to Greece and had one of the best sport climbing trips I've ever had. Oh, amazing. um, Performance and enjoyment. So, uh, yeah, it's quite a nice reminder that if you have an injury or something like that, climbing so varied that you can get around it. I mean, I backed off two routes in a month's worth of climbing at effectively at my hardest. Um just because the whole types were different to what I was expecting to be on, hmm. uh which was which is really good. I was so psyched on it and it was like a good like I say a good reminder just to stick with it and and be uh, flexible.
1: Yeah, that's great. I'm I'm so happy to hear that and yeah, that's encouraging for me right now too. I it, it's you're so right. Like I have this boulder problem. I was hoping to finish here in Moe's and it's got a right heel hook on it. So I might not be able to do it. And it's just like, it'll be there. There's so many others to do that don't have right heel hooks. I can go try them. So, you know, it's, it's all good. I, I think in a couple of days with the knee brace, I'll be, I'll be able to climb reasonably hard. I'm curious, how did you tear your lumber goal on a casual after work climb? What happened?
0: Um, Well, it ended up being quite an interesting, um, this will get really geeky, but it's quite an interesting dive into it. And I think it might highlight some stuff for some other people. And uh, I'll start by giving uh, full props to um, Paul Huffy, who's a a physio in in the UK. I probably just butchered his second name, but uh, he's called The Climbing Physio on Instagram. And he's the most knowledgeable person I've ever met with to do with fingers, injuries, um performance in the hand it's just I me and him have like some really good geek outs like messaging each other and you know when someone I was messaging him while I was away in Greece talking about rehab and um for someone just to kind of go oh no now we're onto it I'm really psyched let's let's ask these questions let's do this and that's you couldn't ask for a, a medical professional or someone to be even better than that so a lot of this information's um from him as well so effectively um it, it came from an underlying issue of um i have quite stiff joints in my fingers now from from loading for a lot of time uh, particularly in the dip joints so the furthest joint away from your palm in my ring fingers uh, you could probably see on the screen like i can't close them you know like if you try to close your fingers like this i can't fully flex them
1: mm-hmm.
0: and one thing that we realized was because of this lack of flexion in that dip joint Uh, if you imagine like you're hanging onto a pocket or you're hanging onto a hold with just your tips if that joint doesn't flex at all it's kind of like not really hanging on the edge it's kind of pushing against it so if you're trying to hang just the last uh, joint of your finger over an edge um, and hopefully you'll you'll be able to see if anyone watches this Um, your finger will bend onto that edge and it'll hang underneath it. And if your finger doesn't bend, as you can see my ring finger doesn't now, it won't hang as much.
1: Uh, It doesn't go all the way straight.
0: Yeah, so it doesn't go straight and this last joint doesn't fold over very much Mm. like this one would. So what you end up doing is you end up kind of pushing with your lumbrical, your whole hand is trying to close onto that edge. So your hand starts to do more and more of the work whether your forearm can't actually work because the tendon won't work properly. So with that in mind, if you imagine joints too stiff, it's making my hands work even more. I've just been training on comp style routes with athletes much stronger and fitter than me. Um, So my hands have got tighter and tighter. And I remember feeling them in... um, in Innsbruck where I'd come off the wall after trying to onsite a climb on their the lead wall. And I was like, God, my hands are more pumped than my forearms are or hmm. pumped. And I just felt this soreness in like the pinky side of your palm. And what that was was just my, uh, overloading my lumbar cores that were getting tighter and tighter. And I think you see this a lot of when people that do too much half crimping, uh, those that do loads of really heavy hangs and half crimp, as soon as they split their fingers, their hands feel really stiff and like they're going to tear. So you get a similar effect with that lumbrical becomes really tight and overworked. So then I went to a local wall for this social session, and I was very controlled. I warmed up uh, really well, but the the holds not to blame the the wall, but were slightly damp still from they just reset them. Uh, and I did a move, and my pinky slipped off. My hand spun on this hold slightly, and just loaded my ring finger more, and my pinky stretched out. Uh, And that kind of shearing effect, splitting your fingers apart, tore it. Um, But what was really interesting was that I could climb almost at full whack with four fingers on when I went away. And I've learned something about my fingers now, which is going to protect me for for the next couple of years or into longevity in the future. And it meant that because I had this slight niggle on the trip, uh, I kept asking Maddie to put all the drawers in our roots so that just in case there were some holes on there I couldn't use. So I'd always have the drawers and the roots I wanted to climb and then I'd be able to do them quick until she got impatient with me doing that. But it was, it was a really nice start to the holiday not having to put drawers in any roots.
1: <laughs> well
0: played. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's
1: what that's I'd recommend. Great.
0: Like with your knee injury, just say that you can't carry your pads. Bag. Brilliant. <laughs> you see how long you can go away for it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> i'm sorry i can only carry this tiny little bifold pad today yeah my knee yeah yeah can
0: exactly. you carry can
1: you carry my big one for me <clears throat> just strap it to your three other ones it's fine <laughs> It's
0: fine. yeah my, my lunch is in there too
1: <laughs> so so what do you do i mean we could probably have a whole conversation about this but are you like actively working on stretching your your fingers yes. and, and working on the joint mobility How how are you going about that and yeah what's the path forward for you
0: so um, I'm definitely working on the joint mobility just by literally squeezing your, curling your finger over and squeezing your fingernail with your thumb and the back of your finger with your forefinger, just trying to create as much flexion there as possible. And I've already seen massive gains in that. I'm really pushing my fingers, um, not until like the point of pain, but just like holding that position just all the time, really regularly, trying to create a lot of mobility in those joints. And then I'm also stretching the the lumbrical. So a good way of stretching a lumbrical is if you curl one of your fingers round fully, and I don't know if you've gone through this before, and then pinch your finger in that sort of flex position. So for, it's going to be hard to describe. It's hard maybe. to describe.
1: Yeah, for, for patrons listening, I'll put the video of this. I'll put the uncut video on Patreon so you can just you know go to this timestamp and check out this part to see what he's describing here.
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's a really, it's kind of a weird one, but you're pretty much curling your finger over uh, and pushing on the back knuckle of your hand. Um, and what that does is it takes the stretch out of the tendon, and it places it all in the hand, and then you slowly straighten your arm. Mm. And you'll just feel it, if you've got tight lumbricals and tight palms, you'll feel it all the way through your palm. And it's that kind of really nice, dull, achy kind of stretch. And it's made my hands feel much, much better, actually. Mm. Um, and then lastly, it's just doing um, mono lifts with just one pad. Mm. So particularly on my ring finger that's injured at the moment, I'm lifting weights with uh, just the last pad, touching the mono hold and um, in full open position. Um, and that just forces the flexion and forces it to get stronger with the other fingers curled up. But it's made it's made big progress. I actually did something similar years and years ago, um, slightly different mechanism climbing in Margalef um and i remember at the time i didn't know how to rehab it and it was sort of a year of not using front three and then i, I figured it out within a, and then with about six weeks it was kind of full back to health mm. of rehab so um this time I, I kind of knew what to do and then paul uh it's just like helped me so much more in terms of understanding the underlying mechanisms. so yeah if any anyone's got anything uh unsure on or they want to learn anything go and follow him and uh you'll definitely learn a lot from his Instagram
1: okay yeah I'll I'll put his information in the in the episode notes um I'm assuming you probably don't want to continue finger training while you're doing this process are you just like putting the finger training to the side and just focusing on getting your mobility back
0: oh no I'm I'm lifting yeah as much as I can um okay particularly like those mono lifts um like, I've gone from sort of, I couldn't uh, say in like a front three drag, I couldn't barely open the door. Uh, it was so sort of painful because it was referring into my finger. Um, and I climbed in Greece, so I had time to recover. And then since I've been back, I've gone from sort of mono lifting like two kilos uh, on that injured ring finger with fingers not really flexing properly um, to sort of like 20 kilos now at the moment. And just I'm going to keep pushing that to make it really robust. Um, I've not done much sort of four finger work, but I am still climbing, um, outside. And it's, it's a weird injury though. I would say it's a weird injury in the injury because as long as, uh, the hold type is okay, I can try quite hard. And as soon as I grab something wrong, it's it, I can't hold on. Mm. Um, but there is a lot of theory out there now to, to just loading injuries straight away. Um, well after like a 48 hour to a week period off, um, and just start rebuilding immediately regardless of the injury i know someone was talking about even in full ruptures um to start loading straight away and that's what they've started doing in their practice and i I couldn't comment on that but it does show that the body will adapt to whatever it's given so um not to be too protective about it and i'm i'm definitely not um if anything i was doing the standard climber thing and not behaving quite enough uh whilst i was away but um, you know, you gotta enjoy your holiday, haven't you?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all that. I'm sure that'll be helpful. And, um, I definitely will be doing some of that stretching myself. I have pretty tight, uh, pretty tight joints for me. It's, it's really the, um, uh, the pip joint. That's the stiffer one. These ones are mm-hmm. semi stiff, but the, these ones are really stiff in the middle and ring finger on both hands. And I I can't get very close to To close Mm. there and um i don't know whether it's a a big problem or not but it's probably not great you know probably better if your joints work (laughs) well and and can go through their full range of motion so yeah i'll be working on that
0: yeah yeah i uh, i've kind of neglected it and thought about it for years but i've never had the explanation to justify all the work Mm. um so yeah now uh uh, now uh, it's been laid out for me. I'm I'm pretty psyched to to make sure that my, I actually pay attention to this and and work on it because it's not just your health now. It's it's kind of performance as well. will start getting affected. So um, standard human error of what's in front of me matters more than what's coming up.
1: Mm, yeah. Well, I think it's a common a common trap to to assume that stiff fingers, stiff joints would lead to stronger fingers. You know, I, I think we. I think with I don't know, especially in American culture, I think we think that tightness is a good thing. That means we're like ready to do really powerful stuff and strong stuff. So, um, but yeah, having healthy joints, healthy tendons can lead to way higher strength than than compromised stiff ones. So I'm excited to see what happens in the in the next few months for you, whether you you know rehab this and then see some uh, performance benefits from it in the long term
0: yeah 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 me too
1: should we jump into some questions
0: yeah let's go for it it's I've, great to uh, have you back I, I tried to make i tried to make a few notes but i uh, I suddenly realized how many questions there were so I, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna try and be concise and uh and uh, confident in my answers so that I won't, I won't ramble too much
1: all right no worries if you do it's a long-form podcast and uh yeah, every everything that, all the tangents are helpful when it, when it comes to you. I, I think uh, your first episode is one of the more popular ones and people really enjoyed it and got a lot from it. I've gotten a lot of really good feedback. So yeah, I'm excited. Um, let's start with this question from Jonathan about critical force training. Um, you had mentioned, we've been email, emailing back and forth and you mentioned that with this one, we'll probably go down some rabbit trails and add some extra context around this so people really understand this stuff. You did talk about it a little bit in our first interview. I think I asked about critical force testing and you gave a, a brief explanation of what it is. Um, but it might make sense to just, to just give a brief explanation. Again, I'll just ask uh, the whole question and then we can go through the different pieces of it. So Jonathan writes, can Ollie speak to critical force training? To what degree is Lattice using this measurement in their training prescriptions? Are they able to correlate critical force as a percent of max finger strength to climbing grades, similar to how widespread data is on max finger strength? And if so, can he provide general guidelines, maybe percentages to strive for for the 511 climber versus the 514 climber? Um, that would be like, you know, in French grades, like in the high sixes up to like 8B plus and above. Um, does training critical force matter for boulderers out there? I think that's a great question too. So, let's go back to the top. Um, do you want to describe again what critical force is and what the training of it might look like and we can roll into that first question about how you guys use that in your training prescriptions if you do.
0: Yeah, no problem at all. Um, so it's a really interesting topic, I think, and this is uh, I think it's important to know people listening that this is relatively modern um sports science not just in climbing at all Um we're really lucky in the sense of uh, we get external experts in to help teachers at, at lattice teach the coaches they present um and james Spragg is a, a sports scientist physiologist that works for a professional cycling team who's who's helped give us a load of information on this so i'm going to sort of draw on some of some of the presentations that he's given to us and and try not to butcher the science too much. So um if you see critical force, it's effectively um it's the force that an athlete can produce for extended periods without fatigue, effectively. So without using those higher energy substrates. Um, so it's kind of like looking at your aerobic ability really to perform something where it's at a level where you can keep producing that same force and it doesn't feel like you're on a ticking time clock, like you're about to power down, you're not getting really pumped. Um, In other sports, you might see this as being called critical power or torque. Um, We use force, obviously, because in climbing, we're applying force rather than uh, trying to go at speed. I think I've heard it called aerobic threshold as well. Yeah, so it's it's kind of like just looking at that that baseline of uh, your ability to work aerobically and sustain that effort. Um, so if you look at, uh, if you imagine a curve on sort of a graph um, and the curve's sort of hyperbolic, so it's a, it's a curve, and the close to the y-axis is at the highest point on this curve. And then as you go further right along the x-axis, it kind of goes down, 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 then starts to plateau out, not at the bottom, but yeah, it slowly goes down and hits a plateau. And that plateau where it just continues is your critical force. So it's kind of, if you imagine it in a running terms, it's your ability just to keep on jogging at a pace where you can be able to maintain the same pace. And the only reason you'll stop is um, you get central fatigue, say so nervous fatigue, uh, you run out of energy stores, or you get really bored because it's jogging. <laughs> and anything above that line, so when you're going faster in jogging or you're applying more force in climbing is called UW prime, which is effectively anaerobic capacity. So if I was to be climbing for me on something like a 5.11 and I could maintain that 5.11 terrain, I'm not getting pumped. Uh, I can keep moving. And the only reason I'll get tired Uh, is because uh, my energy stores match all what i've eaten what i've stored in my body is starting to deplete so i'd be going up a long multi-pitch at that level but if i started going on a 512 i might start getting a little bit pumped and then that's going to that time limit is going to be lowered if i went on a 513 it's going to be shorter 514 even shorter still so anything above your critical force has a time time limit on And we're looking at uh, training athletes to train both of these factors, your ability to um, work at high intensity for a sustained period, but then also increase their critical force. And the reason why they do that is so that you can recover faster between efforts and when you let go of the holds and also so that you've got a bigger aerobic contribution when you are exercising. So the higher critical force the more you can work aerobically, which means you won't get powered out as quick. Um, so I'll try and explain. So I think all the questions were about using it in our training and procedures. So I'll, I'll kind of try and explain this in, in sort of nice terms um, and the way that we look at critical force. So we, we test it in two different ways. So there's two different ways for us to test, which is, one remotely, which is like a really easy setup. We get athletes to do fingerboard repeaters at 50% of their maximum, 60% of their maximum, 70% of their maximum. And they're all done on separate days when you're completely fresh. And they're done um, to failure. You. So you'll, if you can hang 100 kilos on a max hang, you'll do 50% repeaters with 50 kilos going through your fingers, seven on, three off, until you completely blow up. You do the it, same thing at 60 kilos, and that's
1: that's kilos. total weight, correct? That's like your body total weight, yeah, plus weight added. Exactly. Okay.
0: So a lot of the time, for most people, um, most of those weights will be removing weight off the body. Um, but what you end up doing is you'll see quite a high time stamp for the repeaters that you've done at 50%, a lower time stamp for 60%, and a lower time stamp for 70%. And it creates this curve. It's not the most accurate but it's quite a good indication of someone's uh, energy systems and how well trained they are. The other option is the better one that people might've seen on our YouTube channel, which is um, getting someone on a digital board, which records the force they put through, they do seven on three off and they pull to maximum on every, every pull. And you see exactly the same hyperbolic curve. So the same drop off in force, and then they maintain that force at the bottom. So, that's two different ways that we test it and through doing that we can understand uh, if people's power endurance, their anaerobic capacity is good and whether their critical force is any good. And that will sort of dictate their, their training that we prescribe on the back of that. Mm-hmm. Um, is that. Is that making sense so far?
1: Yeah, it is. I'm going to jump in. I'm, that all makes total sense. It's a little technical. So just to give people one more very layman's description of what's happening here, imagine like testing your max finger strength on a 20 mil edge. And then what critical force is testing is the percent of that max strength that you can do seven, three repeaters basically indefinitely. And then above that, you get pumped and you power out more quickly obviously as the weight goes up you get powered out more and more quickly but yeah so it's that threshold where you're still just using mostly your or yeah you're still using your aerobic system which can just keep going and going and going and generate energy as you're using energy and you can just keep going forever so if someone has like you know stefano like broke your test he had like the highest numbers you guys have ever seen i don't remember what his percentage was but for someone who has you know a critical force of 60% of their, of their max versus someone with the same max finger strength who has a critical force of 40% of their max, that first person is going to be able to climb much harder sport routes because they can maintain that 60% with their aerobic system almost indefinitely. And that, you know, that applies to resting on the wall, um, the easier sections of the route, not getting pumped versus that other person, the second person at the 40% is going to get pumped out on those same moves if they're at 60%.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that was a, that was a better explanation. <laughs> um, and I think you've just said it perfectly in terms of um, if you imagine like going on a fingerboard on uh, next to Stefano and he seems to be shaking out on, uh, on like a really small hold and he just doesn't seem to be getting tired. That's his critical force kicking in. He, he finds that hold, um, doesn't stress his body too much. So when you look at testing, and we've done this with a whole battery of climbers now and then the research says the same, is if you train your critical force, if you make that higher, every time you let go of a hold and you move to the next hold, your body is able to give more oxygen to the muscles far quicker and recover quicker than someone who's less well trained. So every time someone like shakes the hand really quickly and moves to their next hold, The fitter you are, the higher your critical force is, the more your body and muscles are getting back. So it means they can last longer. And then also when they're holding onto that hold, if they have a much better critical force likely are, they are contributing anaerobically, but also aerobically. Um, So they'll have a higher aerobic contribution on anything that's um, not close to their maximum hold. So it means that like, like you said, they can just last a lot longer and they can perform better. This has been seen time and time again in sport um, in terms of performance. Um, one of the reasons why we use this as well, and I think some people um, wonder about sort of VO2 max and we get asked about the cardio system and is it worth running and so on, is um, the cardiovascular system, it pretty much starts working And if you start running, Is you've got a lot of muscles being used, some large muscle groups, which gets your heart rate moving that gets your um respiratory system moving that then goes back into the heart and then pumps blood around the body the forearms are too small a muscle group to cause this effect so you can be working your forearms to the maximum and it will not get your cardiovascular system working highly so one of the contributors to having a good critical force is a good cardiovascular system but in climbing that has a very limited use so regarding the question about do we use this in training i will only really prescribe cardio training to a climber that i think is generally sedentary that could just generally improve their cardiovascular system for health and to make sure that they're staying healthy or if they're going to be doing much more full body endurance style climbing or full body climbing in a repeated sense so competition boulderers they are just working all of their body all the time, not just their forearms, and they need to be fitter all over. Or climbers that are going to places like Greece, going to Spain, where, or Rifle, where you're upside down on knee bars, your legs are working the whole time. It's really full body action. So those climbers would receive training to do with the cardiovascular system, like doing running, skipping, uh, cross style workouts. Those who are climbing at Smith Rock or... Raven tour anything where it's your forearms are going to be the thing that blows up, I'm less bothered by cardio training. Mm. So that's one element of how it influences our training. The other contributors to critical force, sort of muscle fiber type, motor unit recruitment patterns, so how your muscles actually work, um, we don't actually know the best way of training that right now. So we kind of focus on the, the biggest influences on critical force, which is how quickly your uh, muscles, how quickly your uh, cardiovascular system can deliver oxygen to the muscles, which is capillarization, and how well it's being used um, within the muscles, which is to do with sort of mitochondria and, and like intracellular uh, changes. The key thing that you need to learn about that Uh, That's getting a bit technical. But the main thing you need to learn is to get a good critical force and utilization of oxygen It's about the volume of climbing that you do. And it's about the volume of training you do. That is the priority. Uh, There's studies showing that if you do the same volume, but you increase the intensity more and more and more, it has uh, diminishing returns. And you can only do that to a certain extent. And it doesn't help your critical force, regardless of what intensity intensity you do that training at. It's the volume of training that really makes a difference. Um, And it was really interesting talking to James about this because um, one, we look at the ability to use critical force, which is, can I shake out on this jug? Am I gonna get less pumps on this route? Uh, That's one element of critical force. The other one is your durability during a session or a season. So you can have a high critical force, but what's your durability of using that? So you know, we've all seen it, those climbers that fall off the top move at the, on their red point day, and then they seem to get to the top move again. And then everyone writes them off, and then they end up going up there again or you know getting really close. And you just can't believe they're still going. That's effectively critical force durability. And the masters of this, in my mind, at the moment, are the Japanese climbing team. Um, if, if anyone knows much about their training, they train for sort of eight hour sessions. Uh, they're doing that, you know, six days a week. And a lot of competition athletes are doing this now. And those climbers that can sustain more sessions, even though they're just bouldering, they're not doing endurance training. They're not doing power endurance workouts. They are bouldering a lot of the time. Those long sessions are increasing their critical force, their base endurance, and they're, Increasing their ability to maintain that critical force when they're tired between sessions and between attempts. Mm. Um, I think someone else who's brilliant at that, if you look at someone like Tommy Caldwell, um, great critical force. Effectively climbing on El Cap is boulder stacking on boulders for a thousand meters. Um and I think like a comp boulder is LCAP's like prime for them because it's about effectively can can you take the abuse, can you avoid the central nervous system during like you know just failing you? Um so that's kind of one element of how we would train that. So if anyone was trying to be able to perform consistently throughout a session or, you know, go on a trip that's more than a couple of weeks, or you know, actually trying to perform on a sustained basis we must include periods of high volume training into their training plan. Um, And I think you can cycle that in and out. So two examples, one is Toby Roberts, who is the competition athlete I work with at the moment the most, um, and Erin McNeese, another competition athlete I work with. And they've been doing a hell of a lot of volume this winter. And they're going into the competition season, start of the World Cups. Uh, That volume will drop down a little bit. And then as soon as there's a gap, it'll spike up again and then competitions carry on, it'll drop down and you've got to keep cycling it to main that du- maintain the durability, mm. particularly in the latest competition format. But it's the same with outdoor climbers. Um, say Aidan Roberts, uh, just because we didn't talk about him in, enough in the last episode. Um, this season he went to training. He joined me and Toby for some really big weeks, training weeks. And he went out to Switzerland and could just climb sort of three days in a row on 8C, 8C plus 9A boulders. And it was actually hard to try and get him to calm down a little bit. Um, (laughs) But his ability just to keep going, just uh, trying more attempts. And the more you have to try, the more likely you are to do something. So that kind of hopefully answers how we use it in our training. The fact that um, we try to get high volume of training irregardless of the type of training throughout parts of the year and in cycling in and out of the year whenever a climber gives us the opportunity and that is irregardless whether it's a boulder specialist who's focused on small amounts of moves or whether it's competition boulder or whether it's a route climber or whether it's a big waller, mm. uh, volume of movement and volume and time climbing uh, plays a massive role and you're critical for so, um, and that's irregardless of what level you're at as well
1: Would the exercises and the focus on what you're doing with that volume of climbing change between a boulderer versus a sport climber?
0: Yeah, so we would definitely do more uh, lower end aerobic work for a sport climber and more power endurance work, particularly closer to a peak, which would be, you know, um, two minutes to 20 minutes efforts on the wall, that kind of power endurance, whilst a boulderer, Probably the longest I would do is four by four boulders, you know, four boulders back to back. Um, But it would still be focusing on high intensity or as high intensity as the person can cope with for as long as they can cope with it. And we tend to, you obviously need to take into account people's lifestyles, what they're able to do. Um, But when people ask me what the best sort of bang for buck training is, it's usually maximizing the volume that they can do at some point in the year mm. um just climbing as much as possible and then reducing that volume um, when they get close to a peak performance and make it more specific, but not to neglect it. I think there's, there's definitely a fashion for trying to do less and be light and, you know, have a lot of energy. And I think that has its place, but at some point in the year, if you want to be durable and if you want to be able to, climb more and have more attempts you need to add in these phases of high volume training
1: Mm. do you have general guidelines on how often to do that within within a year for you know the average recreational stoked climber out there listening to this who's not a pro
0: um i would probably based on what i often see with climbers is most climbers will have two seasons in the year which work you know um sort of usually shoulder seasons or um, they might go winter in one place and then go away in the summer. Um, so if we if we kind of work around two seasons, I would choose one base season. Uh, say for here in the UK and and maybe some of the states is say December, January, February.
1: Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that free teaser with Ollie Tor. Uh, The full version is two hours and 20 minutes, so there's a lot more of this conversation if you want to hear the full thing. The full version is available right now for patrons who support the Nugget Climbing Podcast for $5 per month or more. It just takes a few minutes to sign up. You can cancel at any time, no questions asked. And if you are a huge fan of the Nugget and you can't get enough, it'll get you a lot of bonus content. There's over 50 follow-ups that I've published so far with past guests from the show, You'll also get ad-free episodes from the regular podcast and video episodes. If you like watching podcasts in video format, you can see me sitting down with my guests for all of these episodes. But yeah, a lot more great stuff with Ollie in this conversation. If you want to tune in to the full thing, we tackled a bunch of great questions from patrons. Patrons of the show, that's another perk you get. If you sign up, you can submit questions for guests. And we covered topics like how to improve your endurance while training at home, if all you have is a hangboard or a small home wall, how to train for overhangs with limited resources, the power of expectations, balancing multiple sports, BMI and performance, identifying weaknesses in your climbing, We talked about Ollie's background in gymnastics and which things from gymnastics helped his climbing and which things were unhelpful. That was interesting. And a ton more. We covered a lot of great stuff in this full episode. Once again, the full version is two hours and 20 minutes. And Ollie actually reached out shortly after recording this and wanted to clarify a couple more things about critical force. So we had another 20-minute conversation and I tacked that onto the end of this episode as well. So actually two hours and 40 minutes of content if you want to listen to the full thing. All right, hope you guys are having an amazing week. Thank you for tuning in as always. Really appreciate you for listening and we'll see you next time. like we do it.